we're kind of whistling past the graveyard when it comes to uh, a highly contested environment, because a lot of these aircraft are not going to be that relevant when it comes to operations against China. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The future of the carrier air wing may look very different from anything we've seen before. We'll discuss that with naval strategist Brian Clark of the Hudson Institute, and we'll have the week's headlines in air power. And it's all made possible by GE Aerospace. Maintaining U.S. air superiority means 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling for the F-35. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver these strategic capabilities. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage and ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine at GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Cyber Report, hosted by Vago Maradian. And a quick note that our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show this week was sponsored by HII. Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, and Helicon Chemical. And of course, JJ, we are wishing a Zizen Pesach, uh, or a very happy Passover to all of those who observe what is in the news of the week on All Wings Considered. Before we get into this week's headlines, here's today's headline. As we were about to upload this podcast, word broke that the Government Accountability Office had ruled on the protest brought by Sikorsky against the award of the Army's future long-range assault aircraft program to Bell and denied that protest. That means that the Bell V-280 Valor will be the next Army aircraft. We'll have a more detailed discussion about this on the business report, which this week will air on Monday rather than Sunday due to the Easter holiday. Tune in to Ron Epstein, Richard Abalafia, and Sash Tuza, along with Vago, for detailed conversation on this momentous occasion. Now, to our other headlines. Well, Vago, I, I know you were in attendance along with our Kavis ship's crew at this week's Navy League Sea Air Space Conference, so you may have seen this interesting tidbit live. The N-98 Rear Admiral Andrew Loisel mentioned that future uninhabited combat aircraft could be controlled by multiple services, possibly a reference to the collaborative combat aircraft that will accompany both the Air Force's next-generation air dominance fighter and the Navy's FAXX. We also heard their predictions that up to 60% of the Navy's carrier air wing could be uncrewed or remotely piloted in the future. We'll hear more about all of that from this week's guest, Brian Clark. Last week, we mentioned Antonov's plans to rebuild the one-of-a-kind AN-225 Maria that was destroyed in the opening days of the Russian invasion. Now Aviation Week reports that the head of Antonov, Sergei Bichkov, is facing criminal charges for not getting that airplane out of Ukraine before the invasion and for, well, not renewing the insurance on the jet. I'm not sure Ukraine needs those kinds of distractions right now. U.S. Air Force leaders now say it will cost $9 billion to keep the F-22 viable until it's replaced by the next-generation air dominance fighter. 
House Airland Subcommittee Chairman Rob Whitman has also signaled that he thinks there needs to be a gap filler to maintain tactical capability until NGAD arrives. So don't be surprised to see Congress adding money to keep those F-22s viable and perhaps continuing to deny retirement of those Raptors. Last week, we asked Air Force Acquisition Executive Andrew Hunter about his plans to increase production of advanced weapons now that we've seen what usage rates in a real war look like. Lockheed announced this week a second production line for JASM ER and LRASM. In possibly related news, the Netherlands announced interest in buying JASM ER, along with some tomahawks. Air and Space Forces magazine reports that the Air Force is experimenting with using C-5s to carry fuel to forward bases, presumably smaller bases of the kind the Air Force is considering for its agile combat employment scenarios. That may not work so well with C-5s, since at the outbreak of a war, they're likely to be in heavy demand for other missions. But could the Air Force be experimenting to get ready for a new generation of tanker aircraft like the Embraer L-3 Harris KC-390? Watch this space. And take that article with a grain of salt because I'm quoted in it, so you have no idea if it's accurate. And put a post-it in your copy of Jane's All the World's Aircraft. Re-engined B-52s with their new Rolls-Royce F-130s will formally be called B-52Js. Can probably win a bar bet or two with that one before everybody knows about it. Vago? Two, uh, two things. First, uh, the F-22 is uh, the world's finest uh, air uh, superiority aircraft, and it's vital that the Air Force continue to invest in them. Um, I completely understand the budgetary trade-offs uh, required for those older aircraft uh, and why the Air Force wants to retire them. But a cutting-edge fifth-generation capability is better than not having a fifth-generation capability. And so, you know, if you do need to change the cockpits and update them in order to be able to get greater value and utility out of them, I say do it. Uh, and I think that the whole notion of being able to figure out right wars are about moving energy. Uh, and so ultimately, anything that, uh, that um, adds creativity to how it is that we would support distributed units, uh, especially under fire, is going to be something interesting. I'm not necessarily sure I'd use C5s in order to do it, but the C5 can move, what, warload 260,000 pounds of whatever. Uh, and so 260,000 pounds of gasoline uh, or aviation fuel, not gasoline, you know, could end up being very useful and then pioneer how we use them. I mean, we've used done this in the past, JJ, as you know, where we've used tanker aircraft to move gas around to different places uh, and then offload it. So, you know, it's, it's not exactly a brand new thing, even if, if doing so with transport aircraft is. Well, and the other part of this is that the Air Force is looking at using bases, particularly in the Asia Pacific region, that may not be near docks with the kind of infrastructure needed to get fuel out of a ship over to a base. So this is a way of getting some fuel to remote bases. And again, I think they're just experimenting with C-5s. And if they ultimately do this, it might be with some smaller aircraft that is capable of getting into more fields than a C-5 is. And, uh, and clearly, right, if Lockheed Martin is making an investment uh, in a production line uh, for new weapons, right, I mean, we have on this program and elsewhere on our platform, I've been calling for more LRASM uh, and JASM ER production. I mean, every war game, we're out of LRASMs in a week, right? I mean, the, the program of record was 200, I want to say 400 something uh, missiles by like 2026. Right? I mean, Lockheed's not doing this because it likes the Air Force's smile, right, JJ? So, I mean, this would be you know, an agreement or a commitment that's been made to have more protracted production 
at higher volume, doesn't it? And of course, Vago, it follows a budget submission that includes, for the first time, multi-year contracting for weapons. So yes, Lockheed is uh, reassured by the future for those systems. And it's understandable that they would take that as a sign that it's worth putting money into a new production line. Uh, I am uh, also uh, very, it's very cool that the B-52, an airplane that made it first flew in 1952, and the newest one of which I think was delivered in May 1960, or 1960, I think is uh, the newest airplane. And you got to love any airplane called the Stratofortress. So I'm glad that new new propulsion will be keeping the Stratofortress relevant for another couple of decades. We'll have a new designation for it and probably a brand new model kit on the shelves with those larger engine intakes. Uh, exactly. For those those people who pay attention to those uh, sorts of, of things. And joining us now is an old friend and veteran naval strategist, Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner who is now the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Uh, he has long been a strategist, uh, not just on naval power and military power, but also the future of naval air forces and the need for a mix, not only of manned and unmanned platforms, but how naval aviation must be better integrated into coalition operations to survive and thrive in highly contested environments, for example, uh, including uh, China. Brian, it's always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here with you and JJ. Uh, indeed. Um, uh, so uh, we want to get uh, your uh, sense on the panel discussion uh, that you participated in in uh, unmanned uh, systems on the last day of the Navy League uh, show. I, I can't believe uh, that it was as action packed uh, three days uh, as it was. Um, there was a terrific panel on day two uh, with the entire leadership of uh, the nation's naval air uh, force. Uh, we had Vice Admiral Ken uh, Weitzel, uh, obviously the air boss, the chief of naval aviation. We had Vice Admiral Carl Chebby, uh, the nav air commander. And we also had the two two stars who make the magic happen at an operational level. Uh, Oscar uh, Meyer, who's uh, obviously uh, the air boss's Atlantic deputy. Uh, and then Admiral uh, Andrew Loisel, who's the N-98, who's got the money that makes all the magic happen. Uh, and their mes message was, uh, that actually the Naval Air Force is in good shape, right? That we're in a generational right. recapitalization effort. We got the F-35 coming online, the E-2D uh, Hawkeye, the successor of the E-2C with quantum capabilities that it's going to bring the battle force. The CMV-22 uh, is replacing the venerable C-2 in the carrier onboard delivery mission. We've got the last of the P-3s are going to get replaced by P-8s. We've got uh, increasing F-18 availability. Uh, you know, and also in more good news, the Navy and the Air Force are going to work together to learn uh, the lessons, so the Air Force's lessons on the next generation air dominance airplane and the, uh, the collaborative combat aircraft are shared by the Navy, as the Navy does FAXX in its own version of, of that. Uh, carriers remain a problem. Carrier availability remains a problem, as, as uh, Oscar Meyer pointed out. What's the report card you would give uh, the Navy? Is it as, as positive as uh, the senior leadership is portraying from your standpoint? I guess it would not be as positive, Vago. So I would say in terms of recapitalizing the Naval Air Forces, they're doing a great job. You know, so they've made great progress in terms of fielding the next generation platforms to replace you know, our aging fixed wing systems that are, that are doing uh, airborne early warning for the E-2 and a submarine warfare for the P-8. Uh, the next generation jammers coming to make the Growler a more capable platform. Um, and then obviously we're bringing the F-35 into the, the carrier air wing. 
Um, the problem is, is that we're kind of whistling past the graveyard when it comes to uh, a highly contested environment, because a lot of these aircraft are not going to be that relevant when it comes to operations against China, where the uh, your carrier is going to have to operate a thousand miles from the coast plus, you know, maybe more. And you're going to have a lot of Chinese fighters as well as surface-to-air missile systems deployed, not just on Chinese mainland, but also on islands and on um, surface combatants that the Chinese will deploy farther out to sea. So the idea of having E-2 deltas and growlers you know, going far away from the carrier to support offensive operations as they would have in the past is just not feasible in that environment. So we've got these brand new platforms or these newly equipped platforms that we're going to have to figure out how to keep them closer to the carrier. Um, so that's one challenge is how do you do these missions, airborne early warning or you know, electronic attack, uh, when the airplanes that do them can't go downrange, uh, either because of range limitations for the growler or just you know the threat environment for the E-2. The CMV-22, again, is a great idea. It's going to be a really beneficial to have a common platform across the naval forces, you know, but it um, takes up a lot of space on the carrier deck. Um, and space will be one of the issues that comes up as we look at the future of the carrier air wing. And I guess the last thing would be the P-8. So the P-8, a very capable platform. They're flying the wings off of them right now in a lot of operations. Um, but again, it's a vulnerable platform that in a contested environment like the South China Sea or East China Sea is not going to be able to do ASW at the choke points to the first island chain like we would have hoped to do in past years. It's going to just be too uh, threatening an environment. So we have to come up with a new way to do that ASW mission that you know leverages the P-8 for the things it's good at, which is the people on the PA that do the ASW processing and interpretation, um, and then figure out how you got unmanned systems in the mix to do a lot of the ASW search, detect, track, trail, you know, maybe even engagements. Um, so I think the report card would say B plus, maybe even an A on recapitalization, but maybe a C or a D when it comes to actually pacing the threat, dealing with the threat environment. Okay, let's pick it up from there. You mentioned one of the significant constraints that differs naval aviation from other kinds, and that is space available on the carrier. Right. Given what we know now about the programs the Navy has in trail and coming, what should the carrier air wing look like? Well, the biggest uh, challenge is you've got fixed weight or you've got strike fighters um, in the F-35 and F-18 that are limited to five or 700 mile combat radii. Yeah, so they're not going to be able to really, they're going to just be able to touch um, areas close to shore uh, of China from a carrier uh, that's based 1,000 to 1,500 nautical miles away. So they might be able to go to max range and then launch a missile at max range and be able to reach uh, surface combatants that are doing things in the East China Sea uh, rather the, or the South China Sea. But in all likelihood, they're going to have to get tanking, you know, to get them out to that thousand mile point. So the, the MQ-25 is coming on to give them that range. It takes one MQ-25 for every two strike fighters to get those two strike fighters out to a thousand miles. Then they could launch a weapon that might be able to go 500 miles or, or maybe a little more. Um, and that could actually help a carrier, allow a carrier at a thousand to 1500 miles, 1500 miles away, reach targets, you know, maybe even in the Taiwan Strait, but certainly in the East and South China Seas, which are the relevant areas for the Navy to impact. Um, and that might in, you know, actually deter China if they know the Navy can reach that reliably. But if you've got 44 strike fighters, um, that means you're going to need 15 plus uh, MQ-25s on the carrier to be able to support all those strike fighters getting out to do like a, you know, alpha strike, trying to get as many you know, strike fighters downrange at once as you can, which takes up pretty much the carrier 
Carrier deck. <laughs> um, so Carrier deck and Hangar, hangar Bay are going to be consumed with Strike Fighters and Tankers. Well, what do you do with these E2s, the, the CMV-22, uh, the Growlers, uh, that also need space uh, in both of those places? So the idea would be, well, those platforms have you know maybe survivability issues of their own and range limitations of their own. So maybe the Navy needs to start looking at alternatives for delivering those missions that don't require those to be done from the carrier deck. Growlers could be replaced in part by unmanned systems that are flying from shore, like MQ-1s, MQ-9s deploying air-launched effects, like the Army would do, or you know from uh, other ships using you know, independent runway-independent uh, UAVs, like uh, with the Valkyrie or the UTEP-22. You know these the variety of these skyboard platforms that the Air Force is looking at. Uh, they could be launched from amphibs. They could be launched from shore, and they could do airborne le- electronic attack. Um, and then for the E-2s mission. You can have E-2s fly from shore. You could also have unmanned vehicles do that mission using passive sensors, which is a growing area of DOD's interest is passive sensing to use for airborne early warning. So there's other ways to do those missions that take them off the carrier deck and free up the space you would need to put a bunch of extra tankers on the carrier deck or uh, UAVs that can fly longer ranges, which gets to the CCA discussion. Uh, we're going to get uh, to uh, CCA and what the unmanned future looks like, as well as what FAXX needs to look like. Uh, and it's very welcome that there's going to be cooperation, especially on mission systems uh, packages, even if the airframes of these two jets uh, are different. So there's that was very, very encouraging because as, as you and I have discussed many times, like the three of us have discussed, there was a real fear that the Navy was kind of go off, going to go off and do its own thing. Uh, without right. necessarily piggybacking it on the investment that the Air Force, the considerable investment the Air Force has been making in this technology. The F-18 is going to be the backbone of the Naval Air Force for some time. And despite $3 billion and considerable work, the good news is uh, 372, uh, according, I think, to uh, Admiral Meyer, are of the 570 or so F-18s the Navy has are available. The trouble is that's not a very good availability rate, um, right. and it is you know the whole system is is straining. Uh, obviously, we weren't putting enough uh, investment in people. We weren't putting enough investment in spare parts. We weren't putting enough investment uh, in availability. And and the attitude really was, let's just keep buying new airplanes. <laughs> and why do the shirts if you if you can just buy new shirts? Uh, but but in fairness, the Navy has also been flying the wings off of those airplanes. So right. you know there is it's, it's so it's it's not. Uh, you know, willy-nilly. So I was being a little bit flip in, in saying that, although the, the service also has a lot of attrition reserve airplanes, to be to be candid. From your perspective, if we're going to be stuck with these airplanes, is the Navy making the right kind, the Joint Force making the right kind, and the Air Force making the right kinds of investment in the long-range missilery you're going to need to keep these tactical platforms relevant? You know what I mean? I mean, you've got to go to war right. and you have to deter with the force you have as opposed to the force you'd like to have in another decade. I got it. 2032, we might have an NGAD out there to send or an FAXX, but in the meantime, we got F-18s. What are the kind of weaponry we need to be equipping these aircraft with? Uh, and, you know, in, in the meantime, whether they're coming off of small surface combatants, big ones, submarines, or aircraft, in order to have those kind of layered kinetic effects that we need to, to deter really more than anything else. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, if you look at the carrier as increasingly becoming, you know, basically a strike platform, you know, that's its main job, right? So we start shedding the other missions like airborne early warning. We, we take anti-submarine warfare and have that done a different way. We have um, airborne electronic attack even done you know, by a different uh, set of platforms that aren't on the carrier. 
Um, and then focus it on F-35s, F-18s, um, which will obviously be the bulk of it. Um, and then, you know, unmanned systems down the road. Then it really becomes tankers. You know, so you got to have MQ-25s and you've got to have F-18s that are ready and F-35s on the carrier deck to push them out to a thousand miles. And then you want, you know, a long range weapon that they could launch from there to be able to reach targets that are potentially inside the Taiwan Strait. So the Navy, you know, the carrier can contribute to that mission. So the weapons that are, you know, on the table, I think the best options are to modify existing weapons. You know, so you've got the JASM, you know, ER, uh, you've got the new JASM XR, which, you know, makes an even greater range enhancement by making some modifications to the internals of the, the weapon to give it some more gas. So that that weapon, the JASM XR is reportedly going to get out to like a thousand miles. You know, so you might have an air launch weapon that can, right. you know, hit targets at a thousand miles. So uh, the LRASM, which is a derivative of the JASM, could be modified in a similar way. Um, you might get, you know, about to the same range, but at least you could get it past, you know, the 500 miles or so that it can potentially reach today um, out to something more like 700 or 800 miles. Um, and that could really give a lot of flexibility to the commander now, because if you're, if you can get a, if you can get your strike fighters to a thousand miles and then shoot weapons that can go another 700 miles reliably, now you can you can reach a lot of spaces. You've got room to maneuver. You're not you know strictly doing an out and back. You can actually be able to do something more interesting with the deployment of your force. So to me, that's really the best option is to try to modify existing weapons to get that range enhancement rather than trying to start from scratch uh, and uh, field a new generation of you know air to surface weapons. Following on a discussion that you were part of yesterday at the Sea Air Space Conference, the Navy was the leader in DOD at moving toward uninhabited, uncrewed, unmanned, remotely piloted, however we want to call them, mm -hmm. aircraft with nobody aboard. Right. Beginning with small UAVs they got from the Israelis and put on surface combatants to do artillery spotting and other things, moving along to the experiments with X-47 at unmanned combat air vehicles. Uh, at least in the unclassified world, the Navy was the first to be doing that. And then the Navy seemed to go a bit cold on uninhabited aircraft. We now have the MQ-25 to do tanking and to get the carriers used to having uninhabited aircraft in the cycle. But what should the future of uninhabited aircraft look like for the Navy? Uh, yeah, I think it's um, so the, the challenge the Navy has, obviously, is you've got shipboard UASs, uh, uncrewed aircraft. Um, therefore, they have to be able to be compatible with the ship, which means they might have limitations in terms of the launch mechanisms and where they can be carried and housed and all that, which which has been a lot of the challenge for the Navy, you know, whereas the Air Force has been able to be much more flexible in terms of fielding systems because they've got obviously the space and the, and the areas to do it in. And so the, the Navy, you know, had some initial efforts um, with the MQ-8, the VTUAV, which didn't really work out very well because it just didn't, didn't really deliver on any of the use cases the Navy had. Um, the MQ-25, I think, is going to be uh, where the Navy probably puts a lot of its emphasis in terms of its multi-role capability. So I, so I wouldn't be surprised to see the Navy try to drive toward deploying carriers having up to a dozen or more MQ-25s that are configured for a variety of missions, You know, not just tanking, because the plumbing is such that it can do the tanking mission, but also its mission bay could be used for sensors or for you know, even weapons in the future, but certainly sensors. Um, so I could see the Navy putting a lot of emphasis on using the MQ-25 just because it's already carrier compatible. 
they've already worked out how to manage it in terms of the hangar bay and uh, the flight deck operations. And one of the challenges I think they're going to have with, with bringing on additional unmanned aircraft is how do you get them into that mix? You know, how do you get CCA, for example, able to be maneuvered around on the flight deck uh, alongside these manned planes and the unmanned uh, MQ-25? And I think that's going to be a little bit of a longer pole in the tent compared to what the Air Force might do for CCA. Um, but I think you, know, you could see you could certainly see them getting to you know a dozen MQ-25s along with their 44 strike fighters, um, and then start to take away strike fighters as they field CCAs that are carrier compatible. I just think that that's going to happen after the Air Force has done the same thing. Uh, we talked recently with the folks working on Ghost Bat, for example, down in Australia, and they're not making that carrier capable yet. So they're, they've been thinking about it, but there's been no effort yet to make that a carrier compatible aircraft. I think that's just an example of how CCA is a great opportunity for the Navy but they've got to figure out how to integrate it with the carrier when, you know, there's a, not just the orchestration of planes, but also just the launch mechanism and recovery mechanism has to be uh, devised, which obviously the a, the EMALS and the AAG might be better suited to do that. Um, but it'll be hard to do that from a steam catapult and a steam arresting gear. So those are the things the Navy's got to think about. And that's why I think you'll see MQ-25 take on a lot of this role. And then eventually you'll see CCAs start to feather in to the, the air wing mix. And just really quickly on CCA, we spoke last week with the Air Force Acquisition Executive, Andrew Hunter, who mentioned that CCA was going to precede next generation air dominance aircraft into the fleet by several years. Do you foresee the Navy doing the same thing and bringing the uninhabited adjunct on first before FAXX? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the Navy, you know, the Navy is saying that they're moving along pretty smartly on FAXX. I think I don't think that 2032 is really going to be when it shows up. Um, and I, but I do think you'll see CCA before then. So I do think that you're going to have a carrier air wing that's got MQ-25, F-18, F-35, and then they'll be bringing in some CCAs. Partly that'll be the MQ-25 will be the CCA in an in in initial role. And then I, but I do see the CCAs that they're working on collaboratively with the Air Force come in before you really see the FAXX show up on the carrier deck on, on an operational air wing. So let me uh, pull uh, on that uh, thread a little bit. So the good news is the Navy and the Air Force are going to be working together. And uh, the Naval Aviation leadership said that we should be seeing agreements uh, on uh, all, just, just a range uh, of uh, the programs. And unfortunately, it slips my mind exactly which one of uh, them that they said would be uh, the first one. Uh, you had a front row seat working uh, as you did for John Greenert. Admiral Greenert was pushing for... 5,000 pound flexible payload, long range intelligence surveillance or strike uh, airplane. There was an enormous amount of resistance at the time from Naval Aviation uh, on that. If you remember, the X-47 was going to go to, uh, one was going to go to the Smithsonian, the other to the Naval Aviation Museum. Congress right. sort of intervened. You know, it was like, once we proved it, we no longer need this thing. And MQ-25 was a way to sort of overcome the resistance of five or six CNOs telling me, you know, there was no way to get this this platform into service. So now MQ-25 is going into service one way or another. Now, increasingly, folks are saying, oh, you know, there might be other ways for us to use it, uh, which is no surprise. What are the attributes you think uh, both the NGAD needs as a next generation air dominance aircraft from a Navy perspective, right? The FAXX. And what are the capabilities the CCA needs in a naval application? 
right? What what right. what are the attributes that both of these programs or multiplicity or families of programs need as you look at that future carrier debt composition? You know, so I think FAXX uh, for the Navy application is really going to have to focus on your know, range predominantly uh, and the ability to you know, integrate and manage uh, these unmanned systems. You know, so it's going to need to have the kind of processing power, you know, and sensor capability that the F-35 has, or sensor capability of the F-35 plus the processing power of maybe the F-15EX. And then the kind of range you get out of uh, an aircraft that's got, you know, a more efficient engine and, uh, you know, maybe designed around range rather than multi-role capability. So it, it might end up being uh, not as fast as maybe a F-35 or rather an F-18, um, but maybe it's going to be able to go farther. So range is really going to be a pr- at a premium, I think. For XAXX now, the Navy is pursuing trying to pursue simultaneously range and and speed, uh, and it's going to be hard to get both, obviously, out of a single airframe. But it's going to really be those two. It's going to be that the 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 range. It's going to be the ability to manage and process information and control unmanned systems, and that'll make it you know that'll buy its way onto the carrier deck because it offers something the Navy doesn't get out of its current strike fighters. Um, and then in terms of the CCAs, you know, the, I think, you know, the CCAs that are currently in the mix for the Air Force are, you know, the right ones. I mean, things that can get you out, you know, like a 2,000 mile range potentially, allow the carrier to both be a, supporting the Air Force uh, in terms of operations as well as its own operations. I mean, I think you have, if you have a 2,000 mile CCA, it could actually help. Uh, it could be the thing that delivers Air Force, uh, delivers capabilities for the Air Force uh, bombers that might be doing, you know, deep inland strikes somewhere. So I think, you know, that the CCAs are going to need to be, you know, long range systems that are carrier compatible and then can deliver both weapons and, you know, electromagnetic effects very, you know, consistent with what the Air Force has been looking at in their CCA efforts. This is an air power podcast, so we tend to focus on the parts that fly. But when we talk about the carrier air wing, the carrier becomes very important, of course, and Two weeks ago, we talked with Jerry Hendricks, who had some very strong ideas that the current Ford class carrier, because it was designed for certain cycle times for inhabited aircraft, might not be the right design for the future of the Navy. Subsequently, Admiral Jim Stavridis came along and said the same kind of thing, as did former Secretary Tom Modley. Your take, is this current carrier the right carrier for the future carrier air wing and the future of the Navy? Or should they be looking at another concept? So there's two things I guess I would say is one is um, if you're designing a carrier from scratch today, considering where the air wing is going and the fact that it's going to com- you know com- comprise a much larger unmanned component, you know that might be smaller aircraft. You might say, well, we can get by with a smaller carrier, you know, because things like the MQ25, CCAs, and then if we shrink the manned component of the air wing, you could you could see the air wing taking up less space uh, and therefore a smaller carrier might work. Um, the problem, though, is that the cost to engineer that smaller carrier uh, today is going to probably consume any savings you might get from the cheaper cost of procuring that smaller carrier. You know, so if you go if we try to design, you know, Jerry's 80,000 ton uh, aircraft carrier that's maybe more suited to well, unmanned aircraft carrier air wing you're going to spend, you know, eight to $10 billion designing that. It may only cost 10% less than the Ford class and and maybe at the most 15%. And so you're going to have to buy 10 of them before you might even realize any sort of savings. So that, that, to me, that's the concern. And we've looked at this in the past in studies, you know, the, the trade-off is never really 
made sense. The return on investment was just not going to be there in terms of saving money on procurement uh, because you consume it all in RDT&E. And just like we saw with Ford, you know, every any new ship like this that you're designing from scratch is going to be enormously expensive from the development and testing perspective. I, I want to just um, I've got I've got one last question to ask you, Jerry, but I have to follow up uh, on uh, JJ's question. So what are the enabling technologies that we don't now have to allow us to get the kind of cycle time off a carrier deck with unmanned aircraft that we now have, right? Anybody who's ever been on, a, on, an, on an aircraft carrier, I mean, it is one of the most amazing things to see. And that's because there are actually human beings in each one of those cockpits. They're sentient, they're paying attention to direction. And so once you're in cyclic operations, you can move with remarkable speed uh, and you can do it without emissions. You do it purely with hand signals. You do it in bad weather and at night. Uh, whereas, you know, it is very complicated working with things that are not as sentient and you need to have a controller and, you know, what, where are we on that wing? And I mean, what are the enabling technologies we need if we're going to make these sort of families of unmanned systems operate effectively and, and in conjunction with, right? I mean, it wasn't that the Navy was purely being a Luddite. Naval aviators know what it takes to operate off a flight deck. And they're like, you know, this is going to be a complicated pain in the butt. Um, so what are the enabling technologies we need to make this work? And then I have one follow-up. Yeah, the one, the one key in enabling technology is the machine vision and the uh, automation necessary for the unmanned system to understand you know, the hand signals and the events going on around it and be able to make those same kind of decisions that a human pilot would make in terms of where to move the aircraft in order to be able to efficiently maintain the cycle time. Um, and so the you know, human operators obviously get used to this over time and have you know, habituated themselves to it. Uh, and now we, we've got this you know, somewhat clunky way of controlling MQ-25 with a combination of controllers and you know, handheld systems and to some degree, some machine vision. But we really need to move towards the vehicle having sufficient sensors on it that are designed strictly for the carrier deck and that can detect and understand the operations around it and make the decisions without a human having to remotely control it that a carrier pilot would do, which is certainly, this is certainly feasible. You know, there's nothing that, you know, says you can't, you know, achieve that level of automation. We obviously are doing a lot of this type of automation with vehicles today with your cars and trucks. So that same kind of automation could be applied here. And the limitation is usually that, um, there's, there's not enough sensors uh, on the platform to enable it to understand its environment well enough to make those decisions correctly. So that's a key technology. And the other technology is going to be just launch and recovery technologies because steam catapults and steam recovery uh, systems are not really going to be uh, able to accommodate the very lightweight uh, unmanned or CCA type of aircraft. Uh, and, and that's going to be uh, fascinating giving, given, you know, a, a rusting gear uh, that's optimized for heavier airplanes is somewhat less optimized for lighter uh, airplanes. I mean, the weight of the cable alone, I think people have a tendency of forgetting is, is significant, especially dealing with a light uh, airframe, although electromagnetic catapults make a very big difference. Let me ask you about integration of naval air forces uh, more broadly into what combat and the directions that combat aviation uh, are going and whether or not at some point it gets disaggregated from the aircraft carrier because we have a tendency of thinking, you know, tying naval air forces to the carrier. Whereas in World War II, actually, we had uh, naval aviation units on land. We had naval, you know, marine aviation units distributed uh, as as well as at sea. 
And if the carrier is as vulnerable as we fear it's going to be, we're not going to be moving it forward. But hey, we got a lot of highly qualified people uh, and equipment that we may be able to use differently. How do we need to be actually conceptualizing what this looks like as a joint and coalition force that may right. not actually be as tied to the carrier uh, in certain circumstances as it, you know, in, in wartime as it is in peacetime? So good. That was a good, good question, Vago. The one thing we would say is, or I would say based on our research, is uh, we're arguing that the Navy needs to really disaggregate a lot of the missions that are currently concentrated on the carrier and have them be done by a combination of manned and unmanned and carrier-based and land-based uh, aircraft. You know, so if, if we're having to focus the carrier on the strike operations done by strike fighters supported by tankers, well, then that means missions like anti-submarine warfare, airborne early warning, and airborne electronic attack have to go to other platforms, whether they're land-based UAVs like the MQ-9 that can do that using air-launched effects, or with uh, shipboard um, systems you know, that are being launched like the uh, Skyborg-type UAVs. And then that also opens up this possibility of joint and coalition forces having a bigger contribution to these missions. So instead of the carrier doing it all by itself, uh, it's going to have to become much more of a team effort. And the carrier is going to have to uh, focus its efforts on the thing it does best, which is strike operations, because it's the mobile air base, you know, that can be more survivable than your average land base. And then have that be supported by the airborne early warning and uh, airborne electric attack capabilities coming off of other platforms or from shore that allies can support. So I think that's the, the big you know, takeaway from the analysis was just it drives the carrier to focusing on that single mission of strike and then allowing you know, the other missions to be done by other platforms or by shore. And that actually creates opportunities for allies to contribute more, um, such as the Japanese or the Australians. Just quickly before we go, there's a story today in The Drive that quotes Admiral Weitzel from Sea Airspace mentioning the concept of using the CMV-22 that is being used for carrier onboard delivery as a backup for the kind of missions the E-2D currently performs. You had mentioned before one of the problems with the V-22 is how much deck space it takes up. But if it could be made to do more of these missions, is that an advantage? And if so, why is the Navy ending production? Yeah, so that's a, a great point. Um, so the E-2 is a terrific platform. E-2 Delta is going to be an outstanding airborne early warning platform. Uh, the problem, though, is that it just can't get far, very far downrange because it's vulnerable. Um, that MV-22 is going to have that same challenge. Um, but what it does mean, though, is it gives you the versatility to be able to still have an airborne early warning capability on the flight deck, um, even if your E-2s are maybe operating from shore um, and then you use the MV-22 to provide local airborne early warning um, in support of your overall development of your common operational picture. So I could see it being a really attractive way to provide airborne early warning both for the carrier, but also for amphibs. You know, so one of the challenges that amphibs have, especially you know, big deck amphibs, is they're launching tactical aircraft. They might carry as many as you know, 18 or 20, maybe F-35s in the lightning carrier uh, concept, but they have no airborne early warning. They have no flight controller to enable them to manage air operations. And so this would provide that as well. So it gives you versatility to be able to have airborne early warning, even in situations where the E-2 is not available. But more importantly, it's going to give the Marines this ability to do AEW uh, for uh, Marine TAC air. 
and something for allies and partners, for example, whether they're they're British yep. uh, or Australian or, or Japanese, to be able to have an airborne early warning capability from their carriers that don't have catapults and arresting gear. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's a good question why they're ending production when this could be a whole new uh, mission set that the CMV-22 would be able to support, the MV-22 would be able to support. Just one follow-up on a, from a deck footprint standpoint, right? I mean, I'm pretty familiar with a COD footprint. Uh, anybody who knows me knows that I love uh, the Greyhound, although the CMV-22 does give you a different kind of capability. Is the park deck footprint really all that different between a CMV-22 uh, and a C2? I guess it has to do a little more origamiing to fit uh, because it's got to fold its wings and rotors and everything else, but that's not that big of an evolution, although not as easy as just folding the wings and dropping the ramp. So what's your, what's your deck footprint take up calculus based on just out of curiosity? The C2 takes up uh, space and square footage than the CMV 22. Uh, The big difference is the height. So the CMV 22 uh, is a higher uh, airplane because of the, the motors, when you, when you pull the rotors up and then you put them vertical, they're going to take up more vertical space, um, which makes it hard for them to be brought below and actually managed or maintained down the hangar bay. Um, so they tend to have to go ashore to do any of their maintenance, or they could go to a, a big amphib where they're equipped for that. Um, so to create a challenge in terms of managing deck space and hangar space on the carrier to use the CMV-22. Obviously, they're going to work through that because they've decided to go this direction. The CMV-22, though, would offer the ability to move the airplane between you know, many different platforms. So the C2 can only go between shore and the ship. Um, the CMV-22 can obviously go to amphibious ships. Um, in theory, can go to LCSs. So it gives you that versatility to be able to move between uh, ships that are in the strike group rather than being trapped basically only on the carrier. So that's the cost of basically this more difficult space, Tetris space management challenge. Brian Clark, Navalist above, on, and below the surface, director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. Thank you so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Thanks, JJ. It was great to be here with you in Vago. Terrific conversation today with Brian Clark. And folks, I do recommend that you look at our archive two weeks ago and the discussion with Jerry Hendricks, where you get a very different but similarly knowledgeable perspective on the future of naval aviation. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.